I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa. Today, the tech fake out as the Nasdaq threatens to snap a three-week win streak. We're breaking down the key winners and losers where things could go from here. Plus, call it billionaire flair from Elon Musk's cyber rodeo to Peter Thiel's Bitcoin burn book. And finally, bears in the hood. Goldman Sachs saying sell Robinhood this morning. We will tell you why this hour. D. And speaking of Elon Musk, John, we are just minutes away from an historic SpaceX launch, Musk's private rocket company. SpaceX is scheduled to launch a crew of four to the International Space Station from Florida. But here's what's new. All four are civilians flying with a commercial aerospace company called Axiom Space. This flight will mark the first time a completely private crew has visited the ISS. Takeoff is at 1117 Eastern Sharp. Stay right here for that. We'll have Morgan Brennan join us. We're going to start, though, with stocks. It has been a volatile week for tech, with the Nasdaq down almost 4% since Monday, now on pace to break a three-week win streak, seeing a nearly 1% decline at the moment, make that half a percent right now, recovering a few of those losses. Christina parts joins us now to break down the action. Kay Parts. Hello. So we can blame the Fed rates, multiple compression, recession talk, or just the failure to price it all in. But we've got some swings today and this week. After two days of over 2% declines, the Nasdaq staged a little bit of a comeback yesterday, just barely crossing over into the green. O'Reilly Automotive, though, saw the biggest swing week to date, up over 8%. There's no particular catalyst, but the stock trades about 22 times forward earnings and pays no dividend. You got Constellation Energy, AstraZeneca, Ross stores, all big winners this week, up more than 5%. Costco, though, had the biggest impact point-wise on the NASDAQ 100 after posting some strong March sales. And then Datadog in the doghouse, followed by chipmaker NVIDIA and EV maker Lucid Motors. The catalyst is mostly macro. Higher long-term interest rates are headwinds for these high-growth stocks. And then the company that may be getting into NFTs, but Starbucks' stock is still down over 10% on the week. Two price target drops from Wedbush and BMO analysts. The company also suspended its buyback program. And in terms of the biggest swings... From intraday highs to lows throughout the week, the winner is Chinese e-commerce platform Pinduoduo, a swing of about 20%. And like you guys talked about, as we see it right now, the Nasdaq is down and on pace to break its three-week winning streak. Back over to you guys. All right, Christina, thank you. Uh, Dee, what, what stands out to you this week? I mean, one of the things standing out to me is Coupa, which is up about 5%. Right now, um, you know, at the lows a few weeks ago, I think it was trading in the 70s. Now it's up to uh, above 100 a share. And one wonders, um, you know, where it goes from here. If there's the sense based on this Inspire event, you know, the conferences are coming back. You're getting customers talking to each other, analysts able to have a sense of loyalty, whether some of these smaller software stocks have bottomed out. Yeah, we're going to be talking lots of software, John. I've actually been looking at stocks on a monthly basis because, remember, we did see this big recovery, and that has stumbled this week. But it was interesting to see that some of the names, some of the highest growth names that did sell off the most, they're actually still up on a monthly basis. DoorDash is up nearly 30% in that time frame. PayPal up nearly 20 Block 25%. So that's a bigger picture here. You still have seen this recovery um, continue in these 
in some of these names, however, of course, losing steam. Semis, though, John, that is a completely different story. It is negative on the last month. Uh, so that underperformance continues. The socks negative on a monthly basis. Uh, and this morning, a note from tourists, they're getting more bare, saying that they haven't seen negative order data points in a long time. So what does that say about this industry already under so much pressure in a rising rate environment? And perhaps as more people talk about that R word. Yeah. Well, let's spend some time on the enterprise here. The IGV down more than 4% since Monday. Tomo Bravo co-founder Orlando Bravo joined us yesterday to weigh in on what's driving the pullback. Take a listen. Public investors in particular are looking for shorter-term profitability, especially with the rising interest rate environment. So that has caused these software stocks that are unprofitable today, yet they are great companies, to be down, on average, over 50%. And everyone needs to get the memo that the market has changed and you need to be highly profitable and show that while you're growing your business. So does that mean buy them here? Or does that mean abandon them here? Uh, with us now, former VMware Chief Operating Officer uh, Sanjay Poonin, also formerly of SAP. Sanjay, you, you know the enterprise software space like nobody else. I was just mentioning the Coupa upgrade, and there's a lot of M&A going on. What does that tell you about how much value there is in this market? Thank you, John, and good morning, Deidre, too. Uh, I'd agree with you. Let me just underscore something you just played from Orlando Bravo. Bravo. I really respect him. He's a great investor. Uh, people need to get the memo that what investors are looking for is profitable growth. There was a lot of craziness the last two years. Uh, if you're not showing free cash flow um, and, you know, growth together, as opposed to just growth with a distant future to, to margin expansion, um, I think you got hit pretty hard. I mean, the uh, NASDAQ was down 15% year to date and uh, sorry, since the highs in November and uh, you know, even great companies that I respect, like Snowflake and Atlassian, you mentioned Coupa, they're down 50, 60%. Uh, but at these beat up prices, I think some of them, I talked about this when I was on your show last time, our category leaders, Coupa does one of the best jobs at procurement. Uh, you saw Anaplan being acquired by Toma Bravo. I think some of these stocks are uh, now at a point where they've bottomed out potentially. And some of them are acquisition candidates like Anaplan, whether it's by other strategic buyers or by PEs. I'm very surprised that PEs are paying this type of multiple, but when they're flush with that cash, there are some good buys out there. Yeah, and they're not the only ones buying. We've got George Curian uh, from NetApp coming up later in the show. They just bought InstaCluster, focusing in on this multi-cloud trend, and they, there's still complexity, even with cloud, right, and having to manage um, you know, databases, uh, multiple different types. Um, are there opportunities for companies public companies that have cash that are very specifically focused to beef up in a way that's going to drive their growth over the next couple of years? Yeah, we had a general rule of thumb when I was uh, been an operator at those two big companies that you could spend maybe 10, 15% of your market cap. So certainly companies like NetApp, I think they're in the 20 billion market cap range, will look at, at the smaller tuck-in acquisitions. I'd be curious to know if, if companies like them will look for transformative ones that are bigger in market cap during this time where several of the potential buys are severely depressed. For the bigger companies, and I'm certainly very much long on the Apple, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Google, because they're going to be a big move to the multi-cloud. I think the key question there is, will they buy the bigger ones? I think the Google acquisition of Mandiant is probably a trial balloon to see how uh, the Department of Justice and Antitrust looks at those. 
but I think there's some really good buys in, in security, uh, in SaaS applications. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. But I think the larger players, this is a good time to be looking at your war chest and not looking at opportunistic buys. Hey, Sanjay, it's Deirdre. So how important then is that approval or not approval by the antitrust regulators of that Google Mandiant deal that does get approved? Do you expect to see a lot more activity among the big tech players because maybe it's an indication that they can? It depends on where in the stack. I think in the infrastructure layer, compute, storage, networking, uh, those two players. I mean, when you have it's about a hundred and twenty billion dollar business collecting between the three of them growing 40 percent. You saw the news this week of Boeing splitting out their billion dollars of total contract value across all three. Uh, I think they've got most of the pockets. Um, but when you start to go up into the platform layer, uh, you take, for example, the data layer, John, we've talked about this last time. The database data warehousing layer you've got three companies I see most often, Snowflake, Databricks and Google BigQuery. Uh, Amazon and Microsoft have some holes there. Will they fill it? Will it remain to be seen? You move up to the applications layer. There, really, you've got Office 365 Dynamics of Microsoft and Google Workspace, but Amazon you know, has a few apps. Will those companies move up into the SaaS space uh, and really broaden their portfolio, not just to infrastructure platform and SaaS? There's lots of opportunities, and these are the companies with the multi-trillion market cap. So it'll be very interesting to see yeah how the M&A landscape plays for the big guys and if they will get through uh, and address. Now, the other thing to note is that mm -hmm. acquisitions are not easy to digest. I have a lot of scars on my back from having done an M&A, and the, the track record is 80 90% of most M&A fails. So you want to approach M&A cautiously. Okay, that's interesting, Sanjay. That's the big tech side of it. What about the boom that we're seeing in PE buyouts? We asked Orlando Bravo about this yesterday, too. Is there danger uh, that too many companies start doing it now, particularly those that may not have as strong track records in tech? He said that sort of the secular shifts are so strong that as long as you're aligned with management, you have a clear operating plan, these deals can be successful. What do you think? Is it that easy? Yeah, I mean, in the past, I would have viewed PE deals as the ones where you've got a company that's not doing so well, highly profitable, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of what we saw with Citrix and some of the other ones that went in. But, you know, this the acquisition of Anaplan kind of surprised me, but I can tell you that Anaplan's a good company. If you think about financial planning, sales planning, and supply chain planning, it was actually the first problem I tackled uh, almost 15 years ago at SAP in building analytical applications there. This is a big problem. And you take one of those areas like supply chain planning, um, companies haven't really solved that, uh, you know, today, which is why we have a lot of these, these challenges in, in appropriate planning and optimization. So that's an attractive company. Now, they must have a thesis that that company can get more profitable and put, can potentially even grow faster to pay $10 billion plus for that asset, you know, because you'll have to take that out at almost 15 to $20 billion if you're looking to take that public. Right. So I'm, I was surprised by that, but, you know, looking at Anaplan as a very good asset, um, I think there's going to be many more to come. Sanjay, um, you know, you talk about many of these companies that are in that one to five billion dollar market cap range. Mandiant was in that range, or five to ten. Coupa and Anaplan. There's several others. I think there could be more emanating to happen, whether it's by the strategics or the PE players. Well, we'll certainly look for that uh, and hope to call you back, have you back on if and when it happens. Sanjay Poonin, thank you. Thank you, John. Well, cowboy hats, sociopathic grandpas, and a whole lot more. Tech Check is just getting started.
Another milestone for private space travel this morning with space company Axiom just moments from launching the first NASA-sanctioned but fairly commercial private flight for civilians. Going to get a lift from a SpaceX rocket to the International Space Station. Morgan Brennan joins us now for the countdown. Morgan. Hi, that's right, John. So we are T-minus three minutes from the liftoff of this historic mission. As you mentioned, the first all-private crew to the International Space Station, what will be a 10-day mission, eight days on board the ISS. Uh, and in terms of the video you're seeing right now, that is a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket that's actually already flown to space four times. And on top is the crew... Dragon Capsule Endeavor, which is poised to make its third trip to the ISS inside. You have, as you mentioned, four private crew. Commander Michael Lopez Alegria, uh, who is former NASA astronaut, now an executive at Axiom. Uh, pilot Larry Connor and two mission specialists, Aton Stiba and Mark Pathy. We're doing final checks right now uh, as liftoff is just about two minutes from happening. This is the AX-1 mission. It is the first of four that have been contracted by Axiom Space, which is a unicorn VC-backed with SpaceX uh, and in conjunction with NASA uh, to basically further space flight research and information. Don't call it a space tourism mission, according to the company, uh, to start building out commercial space stations, which is the longer-term business model for Axiom. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of research. There's going to be a lot of testing that happens over the next 10 days. Uh, if and when this gets off the ground in just about a minute and a half, yeah. guys. I think maybe even less than that, Morgan. So we'll cut to that right away. But uh, maybe in the 30 seconds or whatever we have left, put this in context for us. This is a SpaceX mission, of course. There's other companies here. Space tourism, I know they want, don't want to call it that. But Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, where are they in terms of sending sort of a crew to the ISS? Yeah, so this is a very different type of mission. Uh, this is an orbital mission. It's a 10-day mission. Uh, it speaks to the type of space flights, human space flights, that SpaceX does. Um, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are suborbital flights. They are very much space tourism flights. Uh, and as I mentioned, the crew, let's listen in. Chapter begins. Godspeed AX1. Stage one propulsion is nominal. And there you have it. The Falcon 9 rocket with the Dragon capsule Endeavor on top. Four new astronauts headed to the International Space T-plus Station in the historic AX1 mission with Axiom Space. It's pretty incredible to think that SpaceX only started doing human space flights less than two years ago, and this is just the first of two crewed missions that it has uh, on tap for just the month of April, guys. Um, but what's going to happen over the next... Incredible images. Yeah. What's going to happen over the My question before was, <laughs> even though, you know, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, they are suborbital space tourism companies, do they have intentions to do something similar? What would, what would that look like? So for Virgin Galactic, uh, not the case. 
at least not right now. For Blue Origin, uh, that company is developing an orbital rocket, a heavy lift orbital rocket that uh, eventually will take not only cargo, but humans into orbit. Um, And of course, was just contracted one of the three rockets that were contracted with Amazon for Project Kuiper in the coming years, just earlier this week. Now, in terms of this launch and what you're seeing right now, um, what's going to happen is over the next couple of minutes, the first stage, that booster stage of that rocket is going to detach and it's going to start to make its way back down to Earth to re-land again for a fifth time. The astronauts are expected to basically travel, get in line in orbit with the ISS and dock about 7.30 a.m. Eastern tomorrow morning to begin their time on board the ISS. Uh, But again, a historic mission that we are all watching as human spaceflight becomes still expensive, but dare I say more commonplace, Deirdre. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Morgan, it's great that we had you on hand for this. Uh, We'll continue to monitor that flight as we watch it go further off into space. Thank you. Speaking of SpaceX, Elon Musk putting on his 10-gallon hat to host a cyber rodeo celebrating the opening of Tesla's factory in Austin. The rodeo is just the end of a very busy news-making week for Musk, becoming Twitter's largest individual shareholder, joining its board, and now planning to hold an AMA, an Ask Me Anything session um, amid reports of employee unrest. Joining us now, CNBC contributor Alex Kantowitz, author of the Big Technology Newsletter. Alex, where do we start on a week like this? Why don't we start with the AMA and sort of, I mean, certainly this is the first time we've seen a board member sit down and ask any questions from employees. What do you think he hopes to achieve? Well, it's highly unusual. But then again, Elon Musk is just an unusual person. And especially when he comes onto your board, there are going to be some questions. I think for Twitter employees, the main question is, what happens to our revenue from here? You know, Twitter had long decided that it didn't want to moderate uh, its platform. Uh, It said it was the free speech wing of the free speech party. Uh, Then it changed course, started to moderate aggressively and had its best year on record by far last year, uh, bringing in 5.8 billion in revenue, up 37 percent from the year before. So now Elon's going to come in and he's already made comments talking about how Twitter moderates a little bit too aggressively. And you think about the people inside the company who are charged with bringing in a certain number, sales numbers, for instance. And now they're going to ask, oh, is our number one board member now going to have us actually roll back some of those activities? Um, and, and it's a moment where they do need to go and, and sp- spend time with Elon and, and ask him these questions about where the business is going, because at the end of the day, it's still business. Yeah, and that's a great point, Alex. A lot of the discussion has focused on what Twitter's business model, how they grow revenue out of this. But I can't help but feel like this misses the point. I mean, Elon Musk didn't buy a piece of Twitter to unlikely as an investment to earn a return. He's doing it almost as like a hobby. So if he does look to um, maybe keep keep the free speech spirit of Twitter, how do you think that employees are going to react, especially on the finance side? Yeah, it's it's so strange because typically when you have an activist investor come in, they say, I can buy a stake of the business, make some changes and make a ton of money. So what happens when you have an activist investor whose main goal isn't making money? And that's where I see some of the tension coming in with, you know, Twitter's employees and Elon. Um, and at the end of the day, they're still going to need to be people running that company. Uh, and so it's going to be, uh, uh, you know, there are going to be there's going to be tension there. You know, he can be at odds with the employee base. 
Um, and I think number one thing that he needs to do is communicate with the employees. And there are ways to accomplish Elon's goals that aren't just about content moderation. Do you make Twitter distributed, right? A bunch of different Twitters that people can choose which one they opt in on. One that has strict content moderation policies, one that doesn't. Um, do you move away from the ad business model? I think to think about this as just a content moderation play misses the point, um, as you mentioned. And, you know, I think employees are going to want to hear from Elon what his ideas are for the company moving forward. Can they sync the company's business goals with Elon's political and philosophical goals? I think it's possible. And the question is how they get there. <laughs> but Alex, is that even a conversation that you ideally want to be having? Like, how do he's not really an activist investor. He's an activist user. Right. Uh, he, he'd probably be just as happy if the business completely fell apart um, and, you know, people who wanted to tweet whatever they wanted were allowed to tweet whatever they wanted. So, I mean, to, to what degree is this in danger as a stock? Because now they've got to think about priorities that have very little to do with, you know, your average user and have even less to do with the business. I mean, it's a great question. So what happens to Twitter stock if Elon does invest? It becomes a freewheeling place like it used to be. And all the employees walk out the door. You know, can, can Elon's presence all of a sudden like balance out, you know, the fact that their company isn't going to bring in as much revenue or if its growth will slow down? You know, that's a great question right now. Like right now with Elon, Twitter is almost the ultimate meme stock where you have employees that are you have investors that are just going to put their money in because Elon's there and they believe in his mission. So does that balance out? You know, is the stock actually in danger if the company stops making money? You know, or makes like makes less money. It's a great question, and that's what we're going to see play out in the coming months. Yeah, well, we are seeing some weakness today after those big initial gains. Um, elsewhere, Alex, in the world of billionaire antics, we had Palantir and PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel. He's also still on the board of Meta, making some headlines. He took aim at what he calls the establishment during Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. Have a listen. Enemy number one. I, I think he's sort of. Um, I, I think the sort of the, the sociopathic uh, grandpa from Omaha is, um, is um, you know, uh, is, is perhaps the most honest and the most direct in it. When they choose not to allocate to Bitcoin, that is a deeply political choice, and we need to be pushing back on them. We need to say, you know, um, you, have to, you have to get on board on this. Alex Thiel is certainly playing to the crowd. I guess my question, though, is does this hurt or help uh, crypto adoption among the mainstream when you come out with words like this? I mean, he's speaking to the crypto natives. He expected his comments to be on network television. But what does it do sort of in that long term adoption for people who don't want to hear sort of these famed investors called names? Well, I think that the point here that Teal is trying to make is that Bitcoin is more than anything a political movement. Yes, of course, there's the financial part of it. Um, but there's the side of it where people are trying to use this as a balance to the current um, you know, system that we have, the global monetary system, the International Monetary Fund. I was just in El Salvador a couple of months ago. It's legal tender there. Um, it's being used to change a system that um, you know, people are paying a ton of money through remittances. And so um, I, I think that to think of Bitcoin as something that gets uh, widespread adoption through being nice is not something that you know, the people who are in favor of Bitcoin are really thinking of. Uh, they're thinking of this as a political movement that's going to try to overthrow the current system. That's what Thiel has been about his entire career. So I don't really think that he's considering how to sell this to the mainstream. I think he's leading a revolution um, in his mind. 
And by the time the rest of the folks who are sort of wary about hearing Warren Buffett being called names come on board or decide that they might have come on board, it'll probably be too late in his opinion. So, you know, for, for Teal, Bitcoin, you know, number one, it's a political system. And that's what we're seeing happen yesterday. Is it even just political, Alex? I mean, clearly I'm not at Bitcoin uh, 2022 uh, in Miami, but the, the things that I've heard and seen out of it sound kind of like a political rally, but kind of like a religious or philosophical movement as well. You know, you've got the celebrities and athletes on stage. I mean, was there really a technology focus here that's driving people's interest? Uh, is, it, is it even uh, financial self-interest or is it more, um, I don't know, philosophical, something else? <laughs> well, I think you're hitting on the second really important point, John, because um, you know, it is it is financial, but it's but but it is a philosophy. And that's what all money is. Right. Money is just an idea. I hold this paper and I'm able to give it to someone and get something in exchange. And the first thing about money is people need to believe in that idea. So I think you're spot on. I've been watching the Bitcoin 22 conference as well. And there are people that are like out there and it feels like a evangelical revival. And the reason is, is because people need to believe in this idea for it to work. People need to put their money in Bitcoin for Bitcoin to be worth something. And so part of it is, yes, let's mm -hmm. press forward this political ideology. But part of it is, you know, a rally for the true believers to see there are other people around there putting their net worth into Bitcoin and really believing that this idea becomes reality. And if you look at the history of Bitcoin, I mean, my God, um, that's worked very well. The idea has become reality. And the question is, can it push forward even further from here? And you look at the momentum and you would have to say yes. Well said, Alex. Uh, you look back at the history of money. It doesn't look that dissimilar. Alex Kantrowitz, thank you. John, we got pretty philosophical in a five-minute conversation there. Yeah, something like that. Uh, philosophical, um, religious for some, perhaps. Uh, meanwhile, Goldman Sachs telling investors to sell Robinhood this morning. We will tell you why later this hour. Don't go away. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa. Dow higher, NASDAQ lower, uh, the S&P uh, within it. Tech by far the worst performing, down eight-tenths of a percent. Plus, let's check on cybersecurity. We've got the CEO of CrowdStrike. That's in just a moment. But first, it's time for a news update. Morgan Brennan told us about rockets. What else is flying, Morgan? Uh, well, John, here is what is else is happening this hour. The 10-year Treasury yield has risen to a three-year high. It's now above 2.7 percent. The yield curve has also steepened. The spread between the two-year and 10-year yields has widened more than 25 basis points this week as traders bet on faster rate hikes by the Federal Reserve. Meantime, WD-40 extending its gains after reporting strong quarterly results. The stock also benefiting from an upgrade and target price increase at DA Davidson. WD-40 shares surging 13 percent today. They're still down nearly 20% this year, though. And JetBlue trimming early losses today. Spirit Airlines says it will start discussions with JetBlue over its $3.6 billion buyout offer. It says talks with JetBlue could lead to an offer that's superior to a takeover deal with rival low-cost carrier Frontier. Back over to you, Deirdre. Morgan, thank you. We're going to turn back to cybersecurity. CrowdStrike and Mandiant forming a partnership to help joint customers investigate and defend against cybersecurity events around the globe. CrowdStrike this week also receiving authorization to protect critical U.S. Department of Defense assets. Joining us now to talk his outlook for the space, CrowdStrike 
co-founder and CEO, George Hertz. George, it is great to have you with us this morning. Now, one of the biggest issues that we've talked about over the years in cybersecurity is uh, this idea of coordination, sharing intelligence and getting splintered responses. Clearly, this partnership addresses it. Is that part of a larger trend? Is the industry as a whole becoming more coordinated and better at disrupting attacks? Well, it is. If you look at what CIS is doing, uh, which is um, part of the part of the government, we work very closely with them. They've got some joint collaboratives. I think it's been a great opportunity to collaborate with other industry providers. And specifically around Mandiant, we've been collaborating with them for, for some period of time. They're a great organization. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize I, I worked with Kevin in my first company that I started at Foundstone, and it was really the early days of the forensic market. So to be able to collaborate on these very uh, important and uh, devastating attacks and, and understand what the threat actors are doing is critical. And what we announced really was that Mandiant, now that they've sold off some of their technology, will be able to leverage the Falcon platform, the CrowdStrike Falcon platform for their incident responses, which uh, is world class. And we're really excited about that. Jorv, I've, I've asked this question a few times over the last few weeks, but more time is going on and we haven't seen the sort of major attack out of Russia that was and has been expected. Why do you think that is? Well, it's a good question. There's a lot of people obviously looking at this and and kind of wondering as well. Um, And when you think about what's happening uh, in Ukraine, um, obviously it's, it's horrific, but I think they're, they're fairly, you know, focused and distracted there. Um, when you think about these cyber escalations, you know, something has to happen. You see more sanctions, you see, other areas in the geopolitical environment that start to ratchet up. And then perhaps cyber is a response to that. The thing that people have to understand is, as opposed to conventional weapon, once you use a cyber weapon, if it's a destructive attack, it's pretty much done. It's a use once because then you know what happened, you know how to protect against it, you have to recover. But that particular technique and, and the way it worked, just like what we saw with the, uh, the solar winds type attack is, is now it, you know, is now known and you can protect against it. So I think that's what we're, we're kind of waiting for is, is there going to be an escalation and will there be a response? The other thing too is in this particular geopolitical environment, I don't know that everybody understands what's going to happen if there's a cyber offensive attack, given where we are today. Is that going to invoke something broader than just another cyber response back? George, uh, explain if you will, the business case right now for security M&A, what's driving it uh, and what tangible business results is it going to yield? Well, there are a lot of companies in the security space. Uh, you've seen the funding over the last couple of years, big valuations uh, and big expectations. And, you know, when we think about the M&A world, um, you know, there's a lot of companies that are great companies, but their features, they should be part of a a broader uh, organization uh, like CrowdStrike and others. And, you know, we've done a couple acquisitions since we've been public preempt and, and uh, Humio in the log management and observability space. And those sort of things make sense. Um, but, you know, from our standpoint, we're obviously watching the landscape. I think given uh, what we've seen, the compressions in multiples in the, in the public market a bit, I think I do think that'll ripple down into the private markets over a period of time when the next rounds come up. And, you know, I think um, some of the public companies like ourselves will be in a good spot to figure out what assets are out there and and how those might be uh, interesting. So it's it's kind of wait and see. But there's a lot of well-funded companies and uh, a lot of companies that may not, you know, 
get the valuations they want so, in the next round. So that, that brings up other opportunities. So to what degree does having a workforce that's able to give uh, kind of white glove closer in service to specific clients and having access to uh, security-related data from a larger customer base in order to drive uh, AI-type response, to what degree is that important in the security space right now? And is that a, a driver of M&A deals? Yeah, it, it certainly, um, I mean, I think value and, and sort of the market dynamics are one of the biggest drivers. But when you think about a smaller company that, you know, has some good features, they might have some momentum, but not escape velocity. Uh, it's really all about the security data, which is, which is why we created the security cloud, right? The more data that you can put into it, the greater moat you create for your competitors. And as you pointed out, all that inf- rich information is being used from an AI perspective. I always kind of laugh and, you know, say you can get a, a second year, you know, computer science student to create an AI algorithm. That's not the hard part. The hard part is getting the training data to actually get the right outcomes. You know, how do you detect these things without having a whole bunch of false positives? And um, so the more data you have, uh, the more telemetry, we collect 7 trillion events per week. You know, all that leads to better protection, better outcomes for customers. George, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Hope to talk to you again soon. George Kurtz. Thank you so much. Apple's taking a swing at live sports with tonight's MLB doubleheader. We will talk strategy and what it could mean for competitors next. Stay with us. Apple's first Friday night baseball MLB doubleheader kicks off tonight. It's going to be the company's first stab at live sports. Will this pay off? Steve Kobach joins us now to discuss. Steve, what do you think? Uh, you know, there's a lot of money sloshing around out there for, for live content. Yeah, and uh, Apple has unlimited pots of money to uh, at least experiment with MLB. And that's kind of how you can view this one, John, is as an experiment. It's, uh, you know, baseball is typically a regional sport, not something people tune in um, all across the country to watch. You watch your team. So we have an East Coast game tonight and a West Coast game. And, you know, Apple's going to be looking at this data to see if this really pays off for them. And if it does, you can see, I can see them going after more sports rights. we got the NFL Sunday ticket coming up, but everyone's going to be involved in that bidding war. So uh, this is a really, uh, not a huge risk for Apple, more for the MLB to see how their streaming ambitions go. But uh, Apple's, Apple's really trying to make this happen for TV+. Now, as with all big tech companies, Amazon too, Steve, the aim isn't necessarily just to run MLB games, but it's part of a larger flywheel, a larger ambition. Break that down for us for Apple. Yeah, that's right. I, I can't stop thinking about the, the, uh, the iPhone hardware subscription plan that we've been hearing reports about that's supposed to happen this fall. And things like this is just really like the cherry on top. You think about Amazon Prime, you get all these extras on top of the two-day shipping, right? Well, that, if there's an iPhone subscription plan... You know, right now, people aren't necessarily signing up for Apple services in droves. But if you tie an iPhone to it and you can say you get extras like Oscar winning and Emmy winning programming and live sports, it's going to sound like a really appealing package. So, again, this this is the kind of thing that sells iPhones, not necessarily not necessarily getting people to uh, sign up for Apple TV plus for five bucks a month. And I guess it sells Apple TVs, too, and maybe a bunch of stuff, because it isn't part of this the it's just easier argument. Like if I'm a baseball fan and I know I'm going to get to watch a Friday night 
baseball uh, through Apple TV. Well, it's just easier to buy an iPhone because then I could watch it on that if I want. Or it's just easier to buy an iPad then as my next tablet, even though I was thinking about something else because I know I can watch it there. I mean, the, the convenience argument kind of like Amazon Prime, goes a long way. Yeah, John, but on the other hand, you know, Apple <laughs> TV Plus is available on so many other platforms. Like, you, you, we talk about Apple's wall garden all the time, but when it comes to these services, Apple Music is on Android, Apple TV Plus is on, you know, Roku and just about any other streaming gadget you can imagine. So it's not necessarily the lock-in. Again, I'm looking forward to that, that hardware uh, subscription later in the fall because that is what's going to be the appeal. It's this thing that people are excited about, not necessarily the streaming stuff. Right. Kovac, thank you for breaking that down for us. You got it. Speaking of Fang and mega cap tech, losing its bite this week amid the broader sell-off. All names in the red since Monday with Amazon, the biggest laggard. Uh, Tech check on M&A in just a moment. Stay with us. Tech acquisitions in focus with rising interest rates and falling valuations across the sector. Joining us now, fresh off a deal for cloud database company Instacluster, rumored to be more than half a billion dollars. NetApp CEO George Curian, who's led the acquisition of 10 other companies over the last five years. And yes, he is the twin brother of Google Cloud CEO Thomas Curian. George, uh, good to see you. Uh, i got to start off in the rationale behind acquisitions right now in this space. How much of it is because of this multi-cloud movement that we're seeing? Boeing uh, today announcing a deal with Google, Amazon, and Microsoft in the cloud. And and that means you've got to manage all of that from something outside just one platform. That's exactly right. Good to see you, John. We have been transforming NetApp over the last few years from our roots in the enterprise data center to now offering multi-cloud management of compute and storage. And today with the acquisition of InstaCluster, management of databases and data pipelines on top of that infrastructure. So we see the trend and we're executing and capitalizing on it. So how much of a share of wallet opportunity is there for you, especially given the pandemic that we've been going through? I know that our sister company, DreamWorks, used some of your cloud technology to, to get the bad guys movie done during the pandemic. Does that, uh, an engagement like that, cause us to have to spend more uh, on that kind of software in case something like this hits again? We've seen really good acceleration of several long-term digitization trends through the pandemic. We've helped schools move classrooms online very quickly. We've helped to bring some of the vaccines to market in record times. And as you said, we've been privileged to work with DreamWorks on all of their animated movies, as well as to enable them to bring a hybrid digitized workflow uh, to enable them to bring movies together during the pandemic. I think with regard to the cloud movement, that's continuing to, to move along in our customers. And they're looking for capabilities like what we bring to the leading public clouds to help accelerate that movement. George, it's Deirdre. Since you've done so much M&A, I wonder what you make of the boom in private equity buyouts. Jamie Dimon calling them out in his annual letter saying that 
the migration was worthy of serious study. What do you make of that versus, you know, a company with deep experience adding features to its product? I think there's room for both in mature market segments. There's probably room for private equity ownership of, you know, technology companies and other companies. And we have demonstrated the ability to pivot our business in catching market transitions, cloud, multi-cloud, infrastructure and data management. And so we're using M&A as a way to augment our organic development of market leading capabilities. We started with cloud storage, we've expanded it to cloud operations, and now we've added cloud data services to our portfolio. So I feel really good about the combination of organic innovation and inorganic combinations. And I guess private equity is pretty happy about your Insta cluster buy uh, in this case. Um, And uh, it's interesting to me that this company was out of Australia. How much has the move toward remote work made it perhaps easier for you to understand uh, how to uh, integrate an acquisition like this that's uh, based on the other side of the world? Great question. I think it certainly helped. Over the last few years, we've moved NetApp from our roots in Silicon Valley to having technology centers around the globe, certainly in my home country of India, but also Israel, Iceland, and now Australia. And so we're excited to be where the talent is and where the innovation is. Yeah, with uh, Atlassian's Team 22 this week, which you talked about earlier, and now this buy, it's a, it's a strong week for Australia. George Curian, thank you. Thank you. Be well. And if you missed Tech Check on your weekend, make sure you follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Take a look at HPQ. That's HP Inc., not HP Enterprise. It shot higher yesterday on news of Warren Buffett's new 11% stake. Today, it got a downgrade at UBS. Some analysts reiterating their underweights as well. Shares giving about 2.5%, 2.25% back D. Concerns about uh, weakness in the low-end PC market uh, over there. And also, you know, concerns that they might slow their stock repurchases next year after doing all this acquiring. Yeah, and that demand also hitting some of the chip makers. One more thing. Uh, that is a signal for semiconductor investors. Another one, Taiwan Semi crushing sales expectations. The chip maker reporting nearly $17 billion in revenue for the first quarter. That's a 36% jump year over year, beating analysts' expectations by a wide margin. TSMC has been able to keep up chip production in China despite recent lockdowns and clearly benefiting from high demand. The average wait time for semi delivery stretching to nearly 27 weeks in March. So, John, this data point, no indication of sort of declining demand, but not the same elsewhere in the industry. Doesn't look like the stock chart of a company that just crushed it on earnings, though, does it? I guess it makes you wonder just how much of the excitement has gone out of certain areas of the market when it comes to tech. Uh, Can the ones who have been doing well do that much better? Yep. And uh, John, as we as we end the week, the Nasdaq lower by about three percent. And 
get some rest because we're going to have a lot to look forward to in the weeks ahead, a really critical earnings season. Uh, yes, we will indeed. As Dan Niles has told us earlier, a lot of people are going to be uh, watching that specifically to see what it means for tech, which way things are headed. And that'll do it for Tech Check. For now, let's get to the half with Melissa Lee. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.